Well, turn with me once again to Titus chapter 2 this morning. We're back in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as we this week look at the faith-adorned woman. The faith-adorned woman. Last week we looked at the men, uh, this week at the women. But before we begin, let's go to God in prayer, asking him for his help this morning. Father, we uh, this morning so far have seen you as both our king who calls forth his subjects to worship him. We see your majesty. We've seen our failure when we look at our lives to worship you as that king in your majesty. But we've also seen your grace. We see that your grace changes us. Changes us from enemies of the great king to loyal, humble subjects uh, who are not even just seen as subjects, but are seen as children, uh, as sons and daughters of the king. And so, Father, we were so amazed by your grace so far this morning. And I pray as we step back into this passage now and we look at uh, your word and specifically your word to women, uh, that the women here would be encouraged Uh, that they would be challenged if needed, uh, and that you would stir them uh, to live out your grace in front of a watching world, that they would be truly adorned with faith, and they would display uh, the marvelous nature of your grace. Uh, God, I pray that you would be with the words that I speak. Again, may they be encouraging. May they be what you have for us this morning and that your word would do its work in your name. Amen. Well, as I started preparing for this sermon this week, it was strange preaching to women and trying to think about illustrations because I have no illustrations of being a woman. So what am I going to do? So I had to do a lot of of studying into other resources, and I found this story that might uh, stir up some memories for you. Racing the clock in rush hour traffic, Lisa groaned as she was... She saw the predictable bloom of brake lights in front of her. She was going to be late again to the daycare center. An adrenaline-driven surge of anxiety erupted. Come on, come on, come on, she hissed at the cars ahead. Arriving ten minutes late, she mentally calculated the fine levy on tardy parents while she hoisted her son Nate into his well-worn car seat. In between her son's chatter on the way home, she tried to recall what she had purchased at the grocery store during her lunch hour. Did I remember to put away the ice cream, she wondered. They arrived home only minutes before her husband, John, and their older son, Matthew. Entering the dark house, Lisa walked through the handsomely furnished rooms that sat empty all day and flicked on the overhead kitchen light. There the grocery bags sat on every level, including the kitchen table. And yes, one was leaking. Dumping the melted ice cream then into the trash, she Prop something pre-made into the microwave. With one eye on the clock during dinner, Lisa estimated the amount of time she had to get the boys to bed and still pack for tomorrow's trip. Come on, guys, let's get ready for bed, she said, pointing them toward the stairs. Nate stopped at the door to the basement, an expansive playroom outfitted with a lavish collection of toys. Mommy, whined the four-year-old as he looked down the dark steps. We didn't even get to play with our own toys today. Irritation and guilt... Sympathy converged as she knelt to hug her child. Up close, she could see exhaustion spike with contentious confusion in his face. But the schedule must go on. 
Up the stairs they went, the boys to bed, Lisa to her bedroom where the open staircase or open suitcase sprawled on her side of the bed. Something is very wrong here, she kept thinking to herself as she packed her bag by rote. This isn't what the good life is supposed to feel like. Shoes, check. Pantyhose, check. But this isn't what I've chosen. Or this is what I've chosen, she reminded herself. Phone adapter, check. I mean, we, we should be happy, she thought. So why isn't this all satisfying? Does that sound familiar? Life seems to be sprinting by at a furious pace, and you find yourself just trying to catch a breath. Dishes, diapers, homework, haircuts, supper, sports. I mean, how is it even possible to juggle all those things and to do it with a smile for Instagram, right? (laughs) The truth is, our culture requires training and certifications for almost every single vocation that's out there except for motherhood and being a wife. So how come there's not an instruction for that? Well, fortunately, God doesn't leave those questions unanswered. For here in Titus 2, God speaks clearly. He speaks simply and graciously into the mess of the 24-7 chaos of our lives. He's spoken to older gentlemen, gentlemen who are tempted to give in to the cultural expectations for retirement. He speaks to the younger man, the one who can only think of what the next purchase or experience will be that will satisfy him next. And as we see this morning, he speaks both to the older women who struggle to keep the latest gossip to themselves and to the younger woman who is fighting to love her children in the thick of temper tantrums and unplanned doctor visits. Here, in these verses, God shatters the noise of our hectic lives and he speaks grace and he speaks truth and so this morning as we continue our study through this short letter to titus this young church planter in crete we catch a glimpse of what this ministry of disciple making really looks like in the lives of women in the church having looked last week at how the transforming effect of the gospel shapes men's lives paul now uncovers the fruit of the gospel in older and younger women here in verses 3 and verses 5. He shows us that this gospel commission to make disciples is gender specific. That some discipleship, not all, but some, writes Susan Hunt, some is to be woman to woman. Because one of the all things we are to teach in the gospel commission of Matthew 28 is that God designed gender distinctiveness and assigned gender specific roles. And so here, Paul shows us what those roles are and what it looks like to be disciple-makers as women. You see, the inconsistent lifestyle of the false teachers that we read about at the end of chapter 1 had defamed the character of the church. And so now Paul calls Titus and the church to consistent living, and consistent living that is advancing the gospel. Paul doesn't merely give us a list of do's and don'ts here. No, he addresses the specifics of godly living. He makes it clear that our behavior flows from the gospel. It's sound doctrine that gives godliness its shape. It's our desire to adorn the gospel that motivates good deeds. And as we'll see next week, it's the grace of God that trains and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. For the gospel is not just 
good news for eternity. It's good news for today. It's news that changes us again in the 24-7 grind of our week. So notice what the fruit of the gospel is in the lives of women, starting in verse number 3. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. What we see here in this passage this morning is that the faithful-filled woman adorns the gospel and how she lives, and she's living with an inward godliness and an outward love. And so, women, I believe God wants to exhort you through this passage to live faith-filled, distinct lives that make the gospel attractive to the watching world around us. For living in this feministic culture, much like the culture that was in Crete, where women are told from childhood that what's most important about you is how you look on the outside and then true success is in life is gaining prominence in the workplace, the message of Titus 2 is noticeably different, radical, even labeled often by our contemporary culture as discriminatory. Take, for instance, this unnerving question from a dismayed college-aged woman. How can I possibly think biblically about my womanhood when I'm constantly told that independence is power, that I determine my own destiny, and that gender is just a social construct? You see, these are the types of questions that we must, as a church, be prepared to answer. These are the questions we will be asked when we carry out this gospel ministry of making disciples. But the good news is, by God's grace, his word gives us the answers to these questions. And so first of all, this morning, we recognize that a faith-filled woman adorns the gospel in an inward godliness. Here in verses 3 to 5, Paul reveals that what is most important about a woman is not what's on the outside, but what's within, her heart. And so notice with me three specific character qualities listed in these verses that display an inward godliness of a woman. Self-control, pure, and submissive. As we've noted the past couple weeks, the social commentary on the Cretans was not good at all. They're undisciplined in all areas of life. And so just as hard as it was to find a man who was self-controlled, it was seemingly as hard to find a woman who is disciplined as well. In fact, within this list, there's three phrases that deal with this area of discipline and self-control. Obviously, in verse 4, we see that a younger woman are to be encouraged by the older to be self-controlled. But notice in verse 3 how women were giving evidence of a lack of discipline in their lives. By being, Paul says, slanderers and slaves to excessive drinking. One of the first area Paul instructs Timothy to work on with women in the church is their speech. Women are to give evidence of gospel change in their lives by not slandering. That is, not giving false accusations, speaking lies, or speaking malicious gossip. Remember, Christ reminded Peter in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. 
For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slanders. So a woman who cannot control her tongue gives no evidence that she is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. We might also remember what James says about the tongue. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct the whole bodies. Consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too the tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts great things. Consider how small fire sets ablaze a large forest. The tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body and sets the course of life on fire. And it, it is itself set on fire by hell. Now those are some serious words about our speech. You see, a woman who exhibits this fruit of self-control is one whose heart has been changed by the gospel and she displays this inward godliness by her speech and by her words and controlling what she says. She no longer blesses out, out of one side of her mouth and then curses from the other. She is a woman who has learned to give grace and build up others with her words. Some of you know my mother. She's a very quiet woman, but she's always kind and gracious with her speech. Almost too kind if you were to ask my, my siblings and myself. I can remember numerous times growing up when we would be ribbing each other or trying to make fun of, well not trying, we were accomplishing making fun of other people and we would try to get her to be involved with it in some way. We'd try to get her to say something that would be negative about somebody else. And that never happened. She was always kind and gracious. And in fact, she would usually, during those conversations, use her code for us. And that was, wow, aren't those nice light fixtures that we have here? That was her code for kids, shut up, <laughs> right now. And, and then it worked. It worked at home sometimes. Most often it worked when we're out and about uh, and we're giving each other a hard time. She would just say, aren't those nice light fixtures they have here? And that meant you better be quiet because something's going to come. Dad's going to come pretty soon. My mom was and still always is always extremely kind in her words. Even when we would purposely try to get her to join in, her, her speech was seasoned with grace. And that's what Paul is instructing Titus to foster and to grow in the lives of the women here in the church. Speech that isn't self-focused, speech that is self-controlled and seasoned with grace. But also notice that a woman is not only to control what comes out of her mouth, but what she puts in her mouth. She is, as Paul explains, not to be a slave to excessive drinking. Interestingly enough, Paul, in Paul's inclusion of this suggests that alcohol must have been a problem for the ladies in Crete. Now note, though, this is not a call for total abstinence, nor do we find that anywhere in Scripture, but we'll save that for another discussion. But what Paul implies here is this, that the consumption of alcohol should be a matter of self-control. In fact, to do so gives evidence of gospel transformation in your life. To drink a substance that could cause you to lose control 
And to do so in moderation is a self-controlled action. And it's the fruit of the Spirit in you. And so you see, ladies, by keeping your tongue under control or by keeping in, in control what and how much wine you drink or consume, you are making the gospel attractive, Paul says. You, being self-controlled, especially in these ways, is to live distinct from the world around us. So distinct, he says later, that they will have nothing bad to say about you and about the gospel. But notice the faithful woman is not only self-controlled, but she's also pure. She's committed to moral purity. As a single woman, she is one who is chaste in her actions. As a married woman, through the storms of life, she remains loyal to her husband. She is a one-man woman. Further, Paul instructs the the older women to teach the younger that she is to be submissive to her man, to her husband. Now, many in our culture today would consider this command that we see here to be chauvinistic. Yet, doing so fails to read the passage in light of the culture that it's written to. Knowing the cultural context is crucial. For you see, Paul here is actually subverting the cultural expectations of that day by addressing the women. Most would not address women in that day. And so in doing so, he actually is giving women equal dignity to men. This command to be submissive is in fact a call to unashamed commitment to following Christ over the cultural norms of whatever day, then or now. This is a call to follow God's design rather than the culture's design. And so while our cultural expectations are quite a bit different for wives today, the call for women today in the church is the same. And the motivation remains the same. It's out of a reverence, out of a love for God. That's how wives are to voluntarily submit themselves to their husbands. And they follow God's order for marriage established at creation, affirmed throughout Scripture. And as we see, and you might remember in Ephesians 5, as a reflection of the church's submission to Christ. In his commentary on Titus, David Platt points out, Submission means to yield in one's will to the leadership and direction of another. It's more of an attitude than an action, he writes. Though one's attitudes will certainly determine one's actions. So contrary to popular misconceptions, there's no inferiority in submissiveness. Instead, there's a great dignity in following God's created design. So what does this submission entail for wives on the island of Crete? What does it mean for women today? I mean, that's what all you ladies really want to know, right? What does this mean? Does this mean I bring him his slippers at 5.30 when he gets home from work, along with a paper and his favorite snack? Does it mean I have no, no say in any decision in the house? I'm just to keep my mouth shut and do whatever he says. But no, notice here, though, Paul doesn't give us those details. He doesn't really give you the answer you're hoping for. For notice he doesn't address the particulars here. And it's important to note that he leaves the specifics of this matter of submission to the husband and wife to work out. One commentator writes, he instructs the wife simply to submit to her own husband. And depending on individual proclivities, the result may look different in each case. 
Well, understandably, this could be disappointing for the wives here to say, okay, I'm hoping some answers about how do I submit would come from this passage. But the bottom line is this. Ladies, what God wants for wives is not a regimented submission, a submission that adheres to a list of do's and don'ts, but a faith-filled submission that's captivated by God's grace. See, God's far more concerned with your heart than he is with just giving you all the responsibilities in the kitchen. God desires wives adorned with gospel-infused faith, not just this list of do's and don'ts that they are to follow. He desires an inward godliness, not a mere outward conformity to a list. Again, that's what the false teachers were trying to get them to do in the church. They were even trying to attack households probably specifically women, to say, here's how you are to act and just, just conform to these lists of do's and don'ts. But God is about the inward, about the heart that is godly and has a submissive attitude. And so women, are, are you self-controlled? Self-controlled in your speech and with your drinks? Are you pure in your thoughts and actions toward men? For those of you who are married today, are you submissive to your husband? Are you growing in these qualities by, the, by God's grace and by his power? And are you encouraging others to do so as well? For in the end of verse 3, they are to teach what is good so they may encourage the young woman. You see, the fundamental expectation in this passage, both for the men and for the women, is that we are to be discipling one another in these character qualities. So the question for each of us really is, who are you discipling, men and women? Who are you discipling and who is discipling you? Obviously, Paul in this passage specifically is exhorting the older women to disciple the younger women. But the truth is, the culture of the church should be one of a a culture of grace-motivated discipleship. Men meeting with another, man pushing each other to faith-filled Christ-like living, Women meeting with one another, guarding one another from the temptations of comparison and discontentment. And as we see next, encouraging each other to not only inward godliness, but outward love. So Paul next shows us that a faith-filled woman adorns the gospel with this outward love. And Paul gives four specific qualities here that are to be displayed in outward action by women. First of all, reverence in behavior, love for their husbands, love for their children, homemakers, and being kind. Bottom line is, women are to showcase their love for God in their actions, their behavior, your conduct, your lifestyle. It's to be reverent. It expresses your inward godliness. Your devotion to your God is not merely in words that come out of your mouth on Sundays but a devotion that's seen in the way you live. As I was studying this first character quality of reverence, one woman kept coming to mind, and surprisingly, it was Naomi. Do you remember Naomi in the Old Testament? That widow of Elimelech, mother of Malon and Chilion, mother-in-law of Orpah and Ruth, a woman with a simple dream of a husband, children, and grandchildren. But then those dreams come crashing down when suffering sneaks up on her and tragedy upon tragedy comes. 
the death of her entire family, her husband and sons are gone, and she's left in this foreign land without two children and without her husband. Yet, what do we find in those first couple pages of the book of Ruth? She's holding on. She's enduring through the suffering. She's clenching to hope. She's not without her moments of dismay, but her amazing character is evident in the fact that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, clings to her and goes with her back to Bethlehem. I mean, listen to Ruth's words as she replies to Naomi's appeal for her to go and stay in Moab. Ruth says, Naomi, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. You see, despite the agony of the loss of her husband and sons, Naomi's faith in God attracts Ruth. So much so that Ruth, this foreigner, would see the true God and follow that God. So women, does your way of life make your Savior attractive like Naomi? Do you even suffer that way? Is your love for God visible even in the way you struggle through life? Naomi's reverent behavior adorns her Redeemer to her daughter-in-laws. Also notice in verse 4 that a woman's inward godliness is on display in how she loves her husband and her children. Interestingly, this is the only time in the Bible where a woman is encouraged to love her husbands. Of course, husbands are told multiple and detailed times about loving their wives, but this is the only time that we see that a wife is to love her husband. And so what we find here is that Paul's primary concern is that a woman's first commitment under the lordship to Jesus was to her husband and to her marriage especially for the woman who has now become a mother. For the opportunity for the marriage to take a back seat to the children is a a huge temptation. For if we're honest, children take more of your time than us husbands, at least when we don't have the man cold, right? And so what Paul is saying here to you ladies is, you're first a wife and then a mother. And man, this is an area where we need to serve our wives She needs to know from us that she is first our wife and then the mother of our children. And so what we see from this challenge for women to love husbands is that both of us, husbands and wives, need to make our marriages a priority. Let's make sure we get those date nights. Make sure we are cultivating love for one another that's evident to our children. Because he goes on to say that we love the children. Women are to love their children. He encourages them the older women, to teach the younger women to love their children. One commentator writes, Few things are more natural for a mother than loving her children. However, a young mother must move beyond her natural innate affection for her children to a specific lifestyle and a plan of action that will cultivate in her children's godly character and affection. And so, Mom, what this means is that the future good of your children their character, and most importantly, their saving knowledge of Jesus Christ should be primary in your parenting. Oh, I, I know this is difficult, 
especially those of us who are parents, know the difficulty of looking past the target temper tantrums to the future. We know the urgency of the moment when our kid does something downright stupid, entirely selfish, when you're questioning if he or she even has a brain, or you're wondering maybe, in fact, they are the spawn of Satan. What's going on with this kid? That moment of urgency when it seems easier to just give in and buy them the toy in Target, when it seems just easier to just lock them in the room for the afternoon. What we see here is that we are in those moments to, are called to love our children the most. And what that means is firmly disciplining them. Yes, that is love, loving them. And at other times it is simply loving them through hugs and kisses. But what Paul encourage the older women here to train and teach the younger women is to not only love their husbands, but to love, truly love their children and their actions. Let me just say, if you're a parent that's past those target tantrums, please help the younger parents. Come alongside, and that's actually the point that Paul says here. He says, the older women are to come alongside the younger women. Speak truth into that. Whether it's speaking of the patience that God has produced in your life to see those years go by. Whether it's, here's, here's practical matters, especially as Paul points out here, show them practically how to love children and to be, what he says next, homemakers. Once again, there's no training manual, no class that can truly prepare you for that wonderful yet challenging task of parenting. But as a church... God calls us to this ministry of discipleship where we get to speak into the practical areas of one another's lives. We get to help one another. And you as older, mature women get to speak into the younger women's lives, and specifically this, this area of homemaking. We could spend a lot of time on that simple phrase, homemaker. The NIV translates it, busy at home. But there are really outstanding books written out there by ladies who obviously are much more experienced at homemaking than me. But they've also been given, they've been given to the church as a tremendous gift. Books like Feminine Appeal by Carolyn Mahaney and Glimpses of Grace by Gloria Furman. So what I want to encourage you as ladies is to grab those resources. But as is Paul's point here, grab another lady and have, ask them to come alongside of you. Help me in this task of homemaking. But what does this homemaker mean? Now, there's a lot of debate about what this term homemaker means. Well, I'm not going to, again, go into it in detail, but what I want to point out is that this doesn't mean that a woman cannot have a vocation outside of the home, but that the home is to be her primary base of operation and the main focus of her attention. Her home is to take precedence over her job. If one is to take a back seat... It should always be the job, not the family. Unfortunately, the voices in our society can be much louder in this area. And so I want to encourage us as a church to wave the flag, so to speak, on the priority of the family in our lives, both husbands and wives. And so, women, are you, are you making your family a, a priority in your life? Again, much more could be said, but for time's sake, let's look at the final quality left in this list and that is she is to be kind that seems rather simple doesn't it kind 
Commentators note that this word may actually modify the phrase homemaker. So essentially is describing that a young mother is to be gentle and considerate in her dealings at home. She is to be kind as a homemaker. Simply said, she is to be like Jesus as she cares for her family. For in doing so, as Paul concludes verse 5, she ensures that the word of God, the gospel, will not be slandered. This final phrase of verse 5 gives further motivation to the lifestyle of outward love. Not only does the faith-filled woman adorn the gospel in how she lives, as we see in verse 10, but she also confirms the effects of the gospel on her life so that it would not be defamed by others. So ladies, do you see what Paul says here? He's actually commending these qualities for the sake of God's mission. He's saying that our lives, by our lives, we can deflect criticism from those who oppose the gospel. By our lives, by your care in your home, you can confirm the life-altering effects of the gospel. By the way you love your husband and love your children. By your self-control, by your kindness as a homemaker, you make the gospel attractive to the lost. You see, the wonderful message implicit here is what happens in the home as a result of your care as a powerful tool for the progress of the gospel. So here we see that a faith-filled woman adorns the gospel and how she lives in inward godliness and outward love. And that she does so with the help of other women, walking hand in hand with her for her faith, for the faith of those who have yet to turn to Christ. Well, in closing, let me read the words of Elizabeth Elliot as she reflects on this particular passage. And I think it's very helpful for you as women to hear from, again, this seasoned mother, grandmother, someone who studied God's word and learned to live close to Jesus. She said, It's doubtful that the Apostle Paul had in mind Bible classes or seminary or books when he spoke of teaching younger women. No, he meant the simple things, the everyday example, the willingness to take time from one's own concerns to pray with the anxious mother, to walk with her the way of the cross, with its tremendous demands of patience, selflessness, loving kindness, and to show her in the ordinaries of Monday through Saturday how to keep a quiet heart. Through such an example, writes Elizabeth Elliot, one young woman, single or married, Christian or not, may glimpse the mystery of charity and the glory of womanhood. So ladies, I pray that God would so richly pour out his grace into your lives through this ministry of discipling one another and that the fruit would be that you as ladies of Christ Fellowship adorn the gospel through the faith-filled lives of self-controlled, kind in your homemaking, loving your husband and your children, pure, not slandering in your speech. By your faith-filled lives, you would make God's gospel attractive. So God, this morning, I pray that now, that this challenge from your word to the 
the women of our church, both younger and older, whether that's maturity uh, or age, God, that you would, you would so make our women, women who adorn your teaching, your good news. They would adorn that to one another so as they meet with one another, whether that's with little ones running all around at the park, whether that's at the coffee shop sitting across from each other, they would see the beauty of the gospel in each other's lives. And as they pull in others who are not yet believing, that they would see a distinct difference. Wow, this lady loves her husband. She's not always nagging about him and negative about her children, but she, she just has this aroma of grace in her life. God, I pray that you would produce that. I know you are. I'm encouraged by our ladies, but ask that you would do that even more and give them opportunities to share and spread that aroma to the watching world around us. For their joy in you and for your fame and glory here on this earth. In your name, amen.